Hello, Restoration family, and welcome. This is week two of our forgiveness practice, and this week we are diving into forgiveness. God forgives us, and um, if this is your first time tuning in, um, I would encourage you to go back and listen to last week, which was our intro to the forgiveness practice, and then we've got three more weeks after this, so it'll be a five-week total series. And so thankful you could be with us. If this is your first time, welcome. We're so glad you are here. And uh, I'm going to turn it over to Landon Myers, um, who will be teaching on God Forgives Us. Well, if you have a Bible, this is for you, Kate. Uh, We will be in Ephesians chapter 1, and then a little bit of Romans uh, chapter 5. Give myself a timer here, so we're not here forever. Um, Well, this is our second week, as as Jeremy mentioned, in our forgiveness series. Last week, uh, we we introed the topic. Today, we'll talk about how God forgives us. And then the next two weeks will be about what it looks like for us to embrace the calling we have to forgive others. And then the final week will be about us seeking forgiveness So I think it gets progressively harder, so we're on week two. We'll see how the rest goes. Uh, If you were with us last week, uh, Ron and I had the opportunity to teach together, and we presented you with this definition of forgiveness that I want to bring up again. Forgiveness is releasing myself and my offender from the responsibility of bringing justice and trusting Jesus to handle it. And so there's probably a lot of feelings, emotions, ideas that come to mind as we think about this topic of forgiveness, but this is kind of a a different approach. Forgiveness is saying that I and the person that offended me or did something to me are no longer responsible for making it right, for bringing about justice, but rather we're releasing that responsibility. We're not forgetting it. We're not saying it doesn't matter. We're not even saying we don't desire justice. It's natural and probably godly to desire justice, but we are transferring the responsibility from self or from the offender and trusting that Jesus knows what to do with it. And today, as we talk about God forgiving us, the same definition uh, applies, except what's happening now is that the Father is releasing us from the responsibility of bringing about justice for our wrongdoing, and instead he's trusting the Son, Jesus, to handle it on our behalf. So we're going to go ahead and, and talk about that today. Ron and I were uh, spending some time talking this week. I think he's in Indiana today, and it's like negative nine degrees where he's teaching. So poor Ron. Uh, but he, he told me this story about a boy who loved to make things. And one day this boy decided that he wanted to make a boat. And so he, he looked around his house and gathered the money he had and went and bought the, the right materials. And he got wood for the hull. And he got cloth to, to add the sail. And he went and he sketched it out so that it would be designed to just how he wanted this boat to be. And he poured his heart into this boat. It was important to him. And day after day after day, he thought about it and worked on it until finally he completed this project and he held in his hand this boat and he was proud of it. He loved uh, the boat. And so finally it was time to see what the boat could actually do. And so he took it to a, a lake nearby his house and he set the boat in the water and it floated, which was a good start. And then eventually the wind started to pick up and it caught the sail and the boat started to move and the boy was delighted. The boat was doing what he made it to do. 
But then the wind picked up faster and faster and faster. And before he knew it, his boat was working too well, and it was gone. It was out of reach. It left. And the boy couldn't find the boat. So he went home sad and disappointed, yet also with some excitement because the boat worked. And when he got home, his parents asked, how did it go? And he said, well, the boat worked a little bit too good. It's gone. Like, well, why don't you just make another one? He goes, I don't want to make another one. That was my boat. I loved that boat. I can't just make another one to replace it. So a few weeks go by, and the boy hasn't made a new boat. And his parents take him to their downtown area, and they're, they're walking through different shops, and, and he's bored because kids are bored when their parents make them walk through shops. But eventually he walks into a shop, and he sees his boat on display for sale. And he runs up to the, the owner of the shop, and he says, hey, that's my boat. I built it. I made it. I found the materials. And the, boat, or the shop owner looks at him and says, well, I had to pay for that boat. And so if you want it, you're going to have to pay for it too. The, boat, the boy looks in his, in his pockets and scrambles to see if he has any money, and he doesn't have anything. And so he goes home, and day after day, he works and does as many chores as he can to earn a little bit of money. He searches everywhere to find a quarter at a time, day after day after day. And then finally, he gets enough to pay the price. And so he finds his way back to this shop. He goes as fast as he can because he doesn't want anyone else to be able to buy it from him. Walks into the shop and he sees his boat and he grabs it. He makes the exchange. He pays the price for that boat. And then he walks back outside. And as he's walking home, He thinks and then says to himself, first, I made you, then I bought you, and now you're really mine. There's an image there of God's love for us. Love doesn't end. Love does not give up. His love never fails. In Ephesians chapter 1, we we see a similar Picture. I want to go ahead and read beginning in verses 1 through 3. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. And let me just stop really quick and remind you, when, when we read an epistle, a letter in the, the scriptures, like what we call the book of Ephesians, just a guy named Paul writing a letter to a group of people at a real church with real people just like us. They were just in a city called Ephesus. So this is just the real stuff of life happening. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. If you remember from last week, verses 1 and 2 of of Psalm 103 said, Forget not, or remember, all his benefits, speaking of God. And we discussed how God's benefits, the relational benefits we receive, are all tied to his character. We receive out of the abundance, the perfect goodness and kindness and balance of who God is, of what his character is. And so we read the same exact thing here as we did from Psalm 103 in Ephesians chapter 1. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. All these blessings are rooted in God's character and who God is. We said it last week, and I'll, I'll say it again today. We cannot understand forgiveness without understanding the character of God. 
Oftentimes we want to do that, though. We want to skip steps and we go, how? That's the question we ask. How does this forgiveness thing work? And that matters. How God forgives is certainly important. And there's a time and a place to discuss that. Maybe even to have healthy arguments about it with different theological backgrounds. But the how of God's forgiveness doesn't matter if we don't first understand why God forgives. Let's look at verses 3 through 6. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. Listen to the relational language here now. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself, according to his favor and will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us with in the beloved. Again, how matters And the scriptures certainly use uh, some fancy, complicated, theological wording to describe how God forgives. Here's what's interesting, though. I think we, in our humanity, we as humans, we use a lot more fancy theological terms than God actually used. It's interesting. When we want to describe God's love, we come up with long, complicated words with a lot of syllables. And there's times God does that. But what does he use most often? He uses two pictures, the relational pictures. The first is of marriage, of a perfect husband loving his bride perfectly, without failure, no matter what. And the second is in here. It's of adoption. It's of God inviting and bringing us in to not just be in his home, but to become members of the family, children of God. Yes, there's some fancy theological language. Yes, there's times to discuss, argue, fight in somewhat healthy manners, hopefully, about those things. But none of that matters if we don't understand the heart of God. None of that matters if we don't first understand why God forgives. For he chose us in him to be adopted into his family. Why did God choose us because he made us because he made you because for all of eternity god has been in a relationship of love father son and spirit together have been loving eternally first john says god is love and so again we can't really understand forgiveness if we, we skip the fact that for all of time, God has been loving. That's just who he is and what he does. And so he doesn't look at us and say, maybe I will forgive. His pursuit is always forgiveness because this God has always been about love. Romans 5 is going to paint a, a similar picture for us. I want to look at that beginning in verse 5. We read this, this hope will not disappoint us. The the hope being referred to is that broken stories will be made beautiful, that one day Jesus returns, that he will reign on earth as king, and that all of life will be what it was meant to be, that we will walk with him again. This hope will not disappoint us. It will not fail. Why? Notice it doesn't say because we'll start doing good. It says because God's love 
has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. There's a difference between us and Adam in the beginning. And it's our union with Christ. By the power of the Spirit, God gave of himself to us to lead us into this next season. We continue in verse 6. For while we were still helpless, this is going to be really key. While we were still helpless, at the appointed moment, Christ died for the godly, right? He died for the ones that do it all right. He died for the ones that don't lie and cheat and steal and drink and have sex when they're not supposed to. That's who he died for. The ones that don't mess up, the ones that are pretty moralistic and do good. That's not what it says. Is that what we feel, though, sometimes in church circles? Maybe it's unintentionally what's taught in the cultures we've built in Christianity. Maybe that's not true, but maybe sometimes we do this. We come to know Jesus and we become a, a quote-unquote Christian and we're following him because it says he actually died for the ungodly. We go, great, that's me. Jesus forgave and now I can be saved and move forward with my life. And then it's really funny. We're, we're brilliant people, you and I. Because right after we accept this forgiveness and salvation and love and grace from Jesus, we go, okay, I was ungodly, but now, like this moment, I'm supposed to have it all together. No more sinning. And so we walk into these buildings that we call churches, and we just fake it. And we pretend that we're people that have it all together. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say that. By the power of the Spirit, he will bring us to be who he's made us to be. But that's not instant. Somehow, it seems like we become Christians, and then instantly we require everybody to forget the gospel. Verse 6, for while we were still helpless, at the appointed moment, Christ died for who? The ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. Here we go. This is key. But God proves his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, while we were still rejecting him, while we were the ones uh, equivocally hanging him on the cross and spitting in his face, while we still hated his love and his laws and the the life he'd planned for us, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice this. It does not say, but God proved how he forgives us or how he loves us in this. What is being proven is the why, that he loves us. How God forgives matters. But what matters most is why God forgives. While we were still sinners, that poses a question. Why was it in that moment? Why was that the appointed time for Christ to give his life for us? While we were enemies, while we were walking away and rejecting him. It wasn't an accident. It was intentional. It was communication. He was telling us about who he is and how he loves us. See, if he, if he wanted to make it about a test, if he wanted to see, oh, you know what? I'm going to see who does good enough, who does less bad and more good, and I'll choose them. Well, he would have waited. Or if he wanted to see, I want to know who, who knows the right stuff about me because it's all about knowing spiritual information. He would have waited and saw. That's not what he did. While we were still sinners, while in our relationship with him we were failing, Failing at best, 
if not just imploding the whole relationship with him. It's in that moment that he chose us and invited us into his family. Why does God forgive? Because God is love. Because he made you. Because he simply cares about you for who you are. We struggle with that in our American culture because your value, we're told, is in what you do. Hey, how are you? I'm Landon. Nice to meet you. What do you do? That's your value. That's your identity. That's not what Jesus says your identity is. Your identity is a made by him, for him child that he loves. God delights in you. Think about that. That's hard to to grasp. That's hard to comprehend. He looks at you and sees your worst, ugly, hideous moments. And God delights in you just because you are you. He made you. He is love. This is what he does. Let's continue to, to read in verses 9 through 11. Much more than since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. We're starting to get into some of the how language of forgiveness. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more having been reconciled will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice. And we should be known for rejoicing as Christians. We're not. That's a side note, but that's what we should be known for. But we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have now received this reconciliation through him. Let's go, go back to Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. It's almost going to say the same exact thing in terms of the how. We have redemption in Christ. How? Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Who's doing the work for forgiveness? It is not us. One more time. We have, we've been given redemption in him through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness or the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. That's pretty clear language. But we tend to make it about us. I want to take just a couple minutes to talk about the how. We could spend like the next year talking about the how of forgiveness and the fancy language that is sometimes used, various types of atonement, imputation, double imputation, all kinds of things. We don't need to talk about that as much as the why, but there's a few things that are really key because they're a reflection of who God is. By his blood, through his sacrifice, we are forgiven. You'll read in other places of the scripture that he who knew no sin became sin for us. He took on our sin, and then he gave us his righteousness. We become righteous in him, in Christ. That's a lot of kind of heavy language. What does that mean? There's a couple key things there. How does this work? If we read this, and sometimes in the theology we've maybe grown up with, I think there's a couple pretty massive misconceptions that can be really harmful here. One is this. Sometimes... It seems as if God has this plan to save the world, and his plan is simply to play a big, grand, divine game of pretend, where he kind of looks at us and and says, okay, I'm just going to pretend 
I'm going to forget that you ever did anything bad, and I'm going to look at my son, and I'll kind of like see your body, but put a little Jesus mask on your face. If I squint my eyes way up from high in the heavens and look at your body, but kind of see Jesus' face, I'll say, I love that person. But that's not what he does, because he loves you for you. He looks specifically and knows your sin deeply and intimately because he took it upon himself. This forgiveness, this love of this father is not some divine game of pretend. That doesn't make sense. That wouldn't be loving me for me or you for you. That would just be, I guess, being ignorant. The scriptures do say from time to time that God forgets our sin or knows it not. We've got to be really careful with that language too. Because if we don't actually understand what's being said and really articulated, we could make the mistake of thinking our God, almighty, all-powerful God, struggles with memory loss. Well, that's not very encouraging either. But is that maybe how we think of it? Okay, so I did all this stuff, but my, for, my forgetful God forgot. It's great. I just hope something doesn't click and he doesn't remember one day once I'm in heaven. And then he's like, never mind, you're going to the other place. <laughs> Sometimes we have these ideas about God and they actually don't make much sense. Last week, Psalm 103, we read something like this. He has removed there our sin as far as the east is from the west. That's helpful language. It doesn't mean he forgets. He's not pretending. He doesn't suffer from memory loss. But the east will never touch the west. Though they go round and round and round, the east cannot influence the west. They are separated eternally in the same way God has removed our sin so that it can never come back to separate us from God's love. Now that's way better news than having a forgetful God that just no longer can remember what we've done wrong. Instead, he looks at you in the face and he knows every deepest, darkest secret The moments you failed him unintentionally or intentionally, he looks at you and he sees all of it. He goes, you are mine. You are loved. You are good, not because of anything you've done good, in spite of all that you've done bad, because I made you and I delight in you. Remember the most resounding picture that God himself gives us of his forgiveness. It's not fancy theological multiple syllable words. It's a picture of marriage and a picture of adoption. Being brought into his perfect family. God doesn't play pretend. When he forgives, he forgives you and all of you. So what does it mean through Jesus, by his blood? You know, maybe a a way to think about it It's kind of like what happens in marriage. I think about my parents loving my wife, Chelsea. We started dating, I don't know, like 12 years ago or something of that sort. And it's through the relationship that I have with my wife that my parents have now brought my wife, Chelsea, into our family and consider her a daughter. If I was to die today, they would not stop loving Chelsea. I know without a shadow of a doubt, they would do whatever they could Whatever they had to, they would sacrifice anything to be there, support her, and love her. 
for who she is, not for me. Now, the reality is, without me, without this connection and our union and us being brought together as, as one and me bringing her into our family, that love would not be there because that relationship is not there. In the same way, Jesus has brought us by his blood, forgiven us, paid the price, and brought us into his family. My parents don't look at Chelsea and pretend they see me. That makes no sense. That's just weird. They see Chelsea as a daughter they love. You've been brought and bought into the family of God, and he looks at you with love for who you are, all of it, no memory loss. Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. We have redemption in him through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished. I love that word lavished. The book of 1 John or letter of 1 John uses it as well when it says, look what great love the Father has lavished upon us. That what? That we should be called children of God. And to be called means to be known as children of God. According to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he planned in him, Jesus, for the administration of the days of fulfillment to bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. This is an incredible couple of sentences. One, notice this. There's something that brings God pleasure. Not an angry God up in the sky with the spiritual scantron test, see if you pass or fail, and forgiveness is passing you on a test, you actually failed. That doesn't make any sense. He delights. It brings him pleasure to be with you, and that is his plan. That's the mystery of his will. So often our our theology starts in Genesis 3 with the fall and sin. You know why we talk about that so often? Because we like to make it about us. And we want to go to heaven. We don't want to go to hell. But that's not what the Bible starts with. It starts with Genesis 1 and 2, when he says, it is good, it is good, it is good. So what is the mystery of his will? That he came down, he left what we call heaven, to take on the form of man, to come to earth that he called good, and to rid it of this disease called sin. And that he's going to come back, and when he does, he will do what he did in the beginning. He walked in the cool of the day, the best part, with Adam and Eve. As the sun rose or set in a beautiful relationship of love. And he's promised not to fly us up to the sky to sing songs forever, but rather that he will come down to earth to walk with us. You know when those, those, those parts of life happen where something, something just good happens? You take a deep breath and you exhale. You just go, this is good. That's what, that's what heaven is. It's this mixture, this collision, this marriage of, of heaven and earth coming together as one. Jesus walking amongst us. And there's going to be the most incredible music. Whatever part of earth Nate's at at that point, it'll be a hoedown. <laughs> Jeremy might join him. The most incredible music and festivals and parties and the most delicious food competition, architecture, gardens and and buildings, everything this world was meant to be with no sin, no distortion, and God among us fully. That's what brings him pleasure, to be with us 
in that forever because God is love. Verse 11, we also received an inheritance in him. Inheritance is a familial term. Predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will. So that we had, who had already put our hope in the Messiah might bring praise to his glory. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of your inheritance. Again, you are family. The Spirit has been given to us. Romans 5, 5, which we read at first, said, here's the hope we have. The reason it will not fail is because you've been united by Christ, united to Christ by the power of the Spirit. He poured out his love into us. He is the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. How you are forgiven matters, it does. But why you are forgiven matters most. It's been said you can tell how much you love something by what you're willing to sacrifice for it. Makes sense, right? The almighty God of the universe gave up his own life for you. That's a whole lot of love for you because he delights in you. Forgiveness is valuing the person you are forgiving more than yourself and more than the offense. As we started with, that is what Jesus has done for us. Take, take a moment as we uh, wrap up, and this will be painful, but I suggest doing it anyway. Think through the worst of your life, the brokenness, the pain, the moments maybe you've only shared with like one person Maybe you've never shared with anybody that you don't want anyone to know about. In fact, you've worked really hard to forget and to not let come up because it hurts. You're embarrassed by it. You don't want anyone to know about it. The kind of stuff we wish God would just forget. Just let it rise. (laughs) Trust me for a moment. Let it come. Think about it. Dwell on it. If you will, hold it in one hand, knowing that's a part of who you are. And know this. God sees it. But you are so much more valuable to him than anything wrong you've ever done or could do. And he looks at you, and he calls you my child, and he's willing because he loves perfectly to give up anything for you. And so what he wants you to know in this moment, I think, is this word, delight. To be forgiven is not to just have something excused. No, it's for relationship. This God, this Jesus, looks at your worst, yet still he delights in you. And his plan is to spend forever with you, saying again, it is good. That's what this God is. That's what he's about. We can't understand forgiveness until we understand that love. Because God is love. I want to close by, uh, well, sort of close. Apparently I have three little sort of closings. I'm going to read Ephesians 3, 14 through 21 to you because I think it's powerful. It's one of my favorite passages. Again, Paul's just writing to a normal group of people. It's what a church is, not a building, a group of people. And here's what he says. 
For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray, Paul says, that he, the Father, might grant you, according to the riches of his glory. There's a lot of riches of God's glory, by the way. Like, there's a whole lot of options about to come about. According to the riches of his glory, Paul prays that you might, that we might be strengthened with power to do something pretty incredible. I've shared this before, right? To think miracles or to be incredibly intellectual or maybe to live forever or not to suffer or to be given good things. Nope. That you, do the, according to the riches of the almighty God's glory, may be strengthened with power and in the inner man through his spirit and that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, May what? Here it is. All of that. That's a lot of language. May what? That you may have power simply to comprehend, to understand, to grasp with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love. Paul just wants the church. Paul just wants you. God just wants us to begin to have power to grasp how deeply loved you are, how much he delights in you for you because he made you and then he bought you and now you're fully his. To know the Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge so you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask, Or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I'm thankful for this journey that we are embarking on as we navigate this practice forgiveness. And um, if you are a part of one of our practice groups, we are so thankful that you are taking uh, the time to engage and to dive into this. Um, I think this is going to be a really impactful season for a lot of people. It could potentially be really painful, but I think it's really important. And uh, if you are not a part of the practice group, even if you are as well, but will you join us in just praying for those who are navigating through this season? Um, I think the Lord's going to unlock some really significant things for people, but we will need his protection, his compassion, um, his care. And for us as a team and for us as a community, how do we love those people well as we navigate through this season of forgiveness? And so thank you again for for listening, for partnering with us. Um, Again, if this is your first time, welcome. If you'd like to connect with us, you can go to restorationaz.org. We'd love to to connect with you, to hear from you. And uh, until next time, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.